you can go ahead and be seated. Thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, Each week in our service at this time, we take a look at God's Word. Right now, we're in the middle of a sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it up now. This morning, our passage is Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. The the text is going to be projected there on the screen, so you can just read along from that, as well as the sermon notes if you wish. But let's give our attention to God's Word. The scripture this morning is from Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said... John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, He did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amy. Okay, let's uh, take a moment and pray and ask God to help us understand this part of his word. Will you please pray with me? Our Father, we ask again now that you would come and do good gospel work in our hearts. Father, this morning, many of us are perhaps coming here out of a weekend or a week of sadness and grief and loss. Perhaps many of us this morning find ourselves here, God, doubting you, doubting your goodness, doubting your faithfulness, perhaps even doubting your existence. Some of us here this morning, God, have been hurt and had brokenness, fill relationships that mean a lot to us, even maybe in recent weeks. And Father, some of us here this morning just sort of are going through the motions, we're doing what we always do, and yet we sometimes feel that you are far from us and not near. Jesus, as people, we are all 
desperately beautiful and desperately broken. At the same time, we're a big mishmash of all of those things. And this morning, we ask that you would draw us near to you, that you would remind us of your goodness to us, that you would help us to see Jesus, who he is and what he came to do and to rest in him, to believe into him. We ask that you would give us the grace of repentance this morning, the grace of faith in Christ. And we pray that we would not be like Herod, like those who hear your word and sort of enjoy your word in many ways and are enthralled by it and intellectually stimulated by it, but don't really have any interest in doing what it says. Help us this morning, Father, to obey you, not just because you are the king, but because you are good. And because obeying you will lead to our flourishing. It is the best possible thing for us. Help us to do that and to trust you to do that this morning. Father, bless us as we examine your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Repentance. Repentance. That is not a popular word in our culture today. Probably in very few cultures has repentance ever been a popular word. Um, One person has said of Christians uh, that Christianity is the fear that someone somewhere might be having a good time. It's the fear that someone somewhere might be having a good time. Christianity is all about quelling and squashing our good times. Oftentimes when people hear of repentance, that's the way they interpret it. They interpret it as, oh, you religious people again are trying to ruin our fun. You're trying to ruin our, our really pretty good life. We don't want any part of that. Calls to repentance certainly often go down that way in this historical moment, and they certainly have gone down that way in other historical moments as well. But if we want to understand what the scriptures teach, if we want to understand the message and the person of Jesus of Nazareth, we've got to really and honestly deal with this idea of repentance. Because the bottom line is, whether you like it or not, Jesus talks about it and doesn't just talk about it, he demands it all the time from us. As we've been going through this gospel of Mark, we've seen him in multiple places already call people to repentance and to faith. The very first thing Mark says about Jesus's ministry is that his ministry was one where he proclaimed the kingdom of God has come, repent, repent and believe the gospel. He's said that multiple times already as we've gone through this study. And he's really getting at that again this morning as we look at this story of John the baptizer and King Herod. And there's a lot of angles we could take as we think about this really pretty grisly and gruesome story this morning. But the angle I want to take this morning is by focusing our attention on the person of Herod himself. I want us to think about Herod as a man who was given sort of a fork in the road moment. An opportunity to do the right thing or to continue on in doing what is wrong. An opportunity to to use the biblical language to repent or not. And who chose poorly. You know, Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade where the guy says he chose poorly right after his face melts. You remember that part where they're in the temple? That's kind of what Herod finds himself in now. The situation of either choosing wisely or choosing poorly. And so as we focus in just for a couple of minutes this morning on Herod, I want us to consider how Jesus is speaking to us this morning through the scriptures, once again, pressing us as he has all through Mark and as he will continue to do, pressing us to decide for ourselves If we believe that he is who he says he is, if we believe that he really did what he claimed to do in his life and death and resurrection, and we're going to do that by taking this 
brief look at Herod this morning. And again, remember that Mark's main purpose is to have us asking ourselves, what do I believe about Jesus? And knowing what I know about him, how am I going to respond? Knowing what I know about him, how am I going to respond? The story of Herod serves as another great window into how people grapple with that question. So let's summarize the story like this. Here's the main idea for you this morning. Don't let anything stop you from repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. Don't let anything stop you from repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. Three big points for you. First, I want to talk to you about Herod is happy. The idea that Herod is happy. Second, Herod is confronted. And third, Herod is afraid. Herod is happy. Herod is confronted. Herod is afraid. All right, you ready? Okay, because we're going anyway. So you better get ready. All right, so first, Herod is happy. Look at what Mark says about him first. He calls him King Herod. Kings, most of the time, were pretty happy people, we would imagine. Herod actually isn't a king, really. This is, by the way, Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great, who was the man when Jesus was born in the Christmas story, the man that they were afraid of, and so they went to Egypt, the man who was responsible for the slaughter of the innocents in the early portion of the Gospels. This Herod is his son. And Herod the Great, his dad, this guy's dad, when he died, he divided his kingdom, or his kingdom was divided for him into four parts. And Herod, this Herod, Herod Antipas, rules a part of that kingdom. He's not actually a king. He's what the Romans called a tetrarch. He rules a fourth of that province. But he definitely lived like a king, and he definitely loved it when we treated him like a king. And as you go through this story here, really this entire story is sort of a parenthesis in the middle of Mark's gospel to remind us again, Mark is reminding us again of what it means to repent and believe, what it means to follow Jesus. And as we read sort of in this parenthetical story about Herod and John, we see that Herod really has just about everything that anyone could ever want. I mean, this guy has money, this guy has power, this guy has luxury, this guy has pleasure, this guy has anything that he would ever need. An ancient Jewish person or an ancient Roman person who knew of Herod would have thought that guy doesn't have any problems in life. He is happy. And the things that Herod didn't want, he took. And really, that's the genesis of this entire episode. Herod wanted his brother, Philip's wife, we read there in verse 17, a woman, interestingly enough, named Herodias, who also just happens to be his niece. I won't get into all the nasty genealogy of Herod's family. Suffice it to say, it is not healthy. Um, It's Herod's niece and also his sister-in-law, and he decides that he wants her, and so he steals her away from his brother Philip and marries her. Anything that he doesn't already have, which is a lot of things, that he already has, he takes by force. Herod seems to be a happy guy. He seems to have everything that he could ever want by any worldly standard. Money, power, women, entertainment, pleasure. But interestingly enough, it seems sort of beneath the surface in this story that his life really is in shambles. It's in shambles. I mean, it's a huge mess. It's out of control. You know, the great irony of this story is that this man who has control over an entire province in the ancient Roman world can't even control his own family. And that's what comes out in Mark's recounting of what happened. 
But before we move on, let's just pause a moment as we think about this idea that Herod was seemingly happy and consider what seems to be so obviously true here, but is often so difficult for you and for me to actually believe. And here's what it is. Happiness does not consist merely in the sum of our possessions. I mean, that's like a bumper sticker, right? We all kind of nod. Yeah, that's wise. But none of us actually live that way. Or at least very few of us actually consistently live as if happiness is any more than merely the sum of our possessions. That's what Herod thought. He thought happiness would have been the sum of his possessions. And he has everything, but his life, if you look a little bit beneath the surface, is, is a wreck. You know, our celebrity modern American culture tells us a lot of things, but that is certainly one of the things that it illustrates. Also, modern literature in many instances illustrates this as well, this idea that happiness does not consist merely in the sum of our earthly possessions. One of the best stories that illustrates this is maybe the great American novel, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Some of you have, well, I hope you've read that book. You probably read it in high school and haven't touched it or thought about it in however many years it's been since then. But let me remind you that it's actually a brilliant analysis of the brokenness of particularly the American human heart. It's about this man, Jay Gatsby, who in many ways is like Herod. He has it all. He's got everything seemingly you could ever want. But the man who befriends him and his circle of very influential um, money-hungry New Yorkers, this guy named Nick Carraway from the Midwest who's moved to, York, to New York, the more he learns about Gatsby and Gatsby's social circles and social world, the more he understands that looks can be deceiving. That even though this man has everything anyone could ever want, his life is miserable. In fact, he's in love with another woman, and Fitzgerald brilliantly portrays the story as it unfolds, that these people's lives just fall apart despite the amazing amount of stuff they have amounted in their lives. Really, the whole point of The Great Gatsby is that, is that the dream, the American dream of happiness and individualism oftentimes disintegrates when we merely pursue wealth when we merely pursue earthly possessions. It's one of the lessons for us to take from this story. It's the same thing that happened to Herod. Herod is happy, seemingly so. Secondly, we see that Herod is confronted. That's really where the story takes off. John the baptizer, this man that we read about in the very beginning of Mark's gospel, who is Jesus's cousin, he's kind of a crazy man. He's a radical. He's serious about the kingdom of God. And he has, we read, told Herod that what he has done in taking his brother's wife is not lawful. We see it there in verse 18. And the idea there in the language is that John has told Herod this again and again and again. He said he is in violation of God's law. He should repent. He's one of those fiery-eyed preachers of repentance in the ancient Jewish world. And amazingly, we read there in verse 20 that to some degree at least, Herod listened. I mean, look what the text says. Herod feared John. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly, gladly. That's one of the things I love about this story. And I find so fascinating about it is that like the Bible often does, it, it portrays so accurately what we as people are really like. In all of our complexity, in all of our misplaced affections, in all of our emotional brokenness, we see a lot of that here in Herod very vividly. On the one hand, Herod, you know, I mean, think about it. Herod must have hated what John was telling him, Right. How dare this man come and judge me? I'm the king, not him. Who is this guy? But on the other hand, Mark's telling us that 
John fascinates Herod. It's entirely possible, given the world that Herod grew up in, that John's the only person in Herod's life who tells him what's true, who doesn't just act like a sycophant, who isn't just a yes man, who doesn't just tell him what he wants to hear all the time. And to some degree, at least, Herod seems to appreciate that. John is the one man in his life who doesn't spend every ounce of his energy trying to ingratiate himself with Herod. John told him the full truth and nothing but the truth. Consequences be darned. Consequences out the window. And Herod, to some degree, respected John for this. Mark even tells us that Herod liked to listen to John. He heard him gladly. These two guys had an interesting relationship to say the least. But here's what you got to get. I want you to listen. Herod liked to listen. He liked to listen to John. He liked to hear about Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God come. But when the fork in the road moment came in Herod's own story, Herod balked. When the chance to actually do what John was calling him to, when the chance to actually repent came along, Herod decided he wanted no part of it. He flirted with John. He flirted with John's message of repentance. He's intrigued and puzzled by it. He was a captive audience that even enjoyed time with John, but he's not willing to do. He's not willing to repent. He's not willing to change. And here's where this text begins to hit home with you and with me. Because the facts are, even in a room this size with this many people, some of us are in the same boat as Herod, even today. How? Well, you might be here interested in Jesus, interested in the Bible. You might be entertained or enthusiastic about preaching or about discussing these ideas with your friends. You might be puzzled sort of the skeptical inquisitor and want to think about it more. You might enjoy coming to church because you really like the people you meet here. You've made some good new friends. There's all kinds of reasons to hear gladly like Herod heard John. But there's a difference. Listen, there's a difference between just being here and flirting around and then actually acting on what you are hearing. There's a difference between just being here and enjoying yourself to a certain extent and then actually doing what Jesus, the Lord of the universe, actually commands of you and of me. He commands of us repentance. And again, a lot of us don't like that idea because we think it means we have to stop having fun. But really, the biblical idea of repentance is not that at all. It's actually a call for you to turn from what leads to death to turn from what leads to brokenness, to turn from what's going to lead to the disintegration of your life, and two, to turn to that which leads to life, that which leads to flourishing, that which leads to hope, that which leads to renewal, that which leads to fulfillment, which is life under the good kingship of Jesus Christ. And the question that is being asked of you via Herod's story is, where are you? Are you willing to do that? Have you heard Jesus and then acted on what he has said? Or are you just enjoying the ride and thinking about it all in exclusively intellectual or emotional ways? What is holding you back from not just hearing gladly, but actually doing what Jesus says gladly? What is holding you back from not just hearing, but hearing, repenting, and believing? I think when I think about ideas and thoughts like this of 
multiple friends that I've had in life and ministry. I haven't been in ministry for a lot of years, but I've had multiple experiences of people who have been around Christian circles for a while, who have even expressed faith in Jesus Christ, who have said they want to be a part of this. And later on, like we read about in the parable of the sower, the cares of the world choke them out and they fade away. Two people I think of in particular, one young lady who was a college student in a former ministry that I was a part of, who for some time was extremely excited about life with Jesus, extremely excited about the idea of the gospel and about the new relationships she was making. But when it came time for her to make a hard decision where she had to say, I'm going to have to obey Jesus here and actually deal with some loss in a certain relationship, she balked. She was unwilling to do that through the pleading and counsel of myself as her pastor and many other friends, she still resisted. Maybe you've had an experience like that with someone in your life. Maybe you're experiencing that or have experienced that yourself. Maybe you're at a fork in the road moment now where Jesus is even this morning calling you not just to hear him, but to actually do what he says, to turn away from the idols in your life that will always let you down and to trust in him solely instead. What is it that's holding you back? What is it that was holding Herod back? Well, let's look at that finally. We've seen that Herod is happy, seemingly. Herod is confronted. And then thirdly, Herod is afraid. Now, Herod loves listening to John. He loves sort of playing the game with John. Herod probably even knows, right, deep down, that John is telling the truth. He knows because he's made in God's image that he's a sinner in need of forgiveness. He knows his life is a wreck, even though everyone would think he's happy on the outside. He knows that there's nothing he can do to help himself, that his only course of action is to trust in this Messiah that John has been talking to him about. He knows, surely he knows, but he doesn't do it, not any of it. And he doesn't do it because he is afraid. He doesn't do it because he's afraid. Who or what is he afraid of? Well, let's look. First, he's afraid of his wife. That might be a common experience for some of you men. He's afraid of his wife. Look there in verse 19. Herodias, when she heard that John was calling them out on their false and adulterous relationship, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she couldn't, verse 20, because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. In other words, Herod had put John in prison to keep him away from Herodias, his wife, the Jezebel of the New Testament, you know, the Lady Macbeth of the New Testament. He tries to to keep John away from his wife because he doesn't want to actually have to deal with the crushing brokenness that this idolatrous, adulterous relationship has become. He doesn't want to deal with Herodias refusing to change in the way that John is calling her to change. He's afraid of the conflict that's going to ensue. He's afraid of the havoc she's going to wreak. He's afraid of it all. And so he sort of hides John away in the prison and tries to distance himself from the entire situation. He's afraid of his wife. He's afraid of Herodias. He's afraid of dealing with the turmoil that's been caused by his actions. He's also afraid of looking badly or looking foolishly. He's having his big birthday party there in verse 21. And we read there that the nobles and the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, they're all there. And then Herodias's daughter, this is Disgusting, right? I mean, it's just a nasty story. The Bible doesn't shy away from telling us about the nastiness and the brokenness of the human situation in a fallen world. His stepdaughter comes in and does this dance. And by the way, this dance is undoubtedly meant to be seductive. 
The whole point of the dance is to get all these drunken men to fawn over her so that they will do for her whatever she wants. And Herodias has sent her own daughter in there to get exactly the response that she gets from her husband. And he hears her say, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist. And he sobers up really, really quickly. And then maybe the key verse in the whole story is verse 26. The king, Herod, was exceedingly, exceedingly sorry. He feels really bad about it. He's super sad. He's upset. But because of what? Because of the promises he's made and because of his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. And so immediately he goes and gets the executioner. The executioner goes down into the dungeon where John was chained to the wall. He unchains John. He chops off his head, sends the head back to the banquet hall. The head is put on a platter. The platter is brought before John the Baptist and the party, the party at that point really goes south. You could imagine. What's the point of all this? The point is that Herod is given an opportunity here. He's given a fork in the road moment. When Herodias' daughter comes in and says, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist, that's the moment when Herod has the opportunity to say, no, I am not going to do this vile and wicked thing. No. That's the moment when he has the opportunity to say what he always thought. No, John is righteous and a holy man. This is wrong and unjust. I'm sorry to ruin the party. I'm sorry to ruin your entertainment, but I cannot do this thing. It's the opportunity for him to put into action the thing that John the Baptist has been calling him to do, to repent, but he doesn't do it because he's too scared. He's too scared of what the nobles and the leading men of Galilee will think. He's too scared of looking bad. He's too scared of letting everybody know that the emperor really has no clothes after all. That he's not the man he's been cracked up to be. That he doesn't have it all together. That he's not happy. And so he gives this innocent man's life just to satisfy Herodias' grudge. When he should say, I don't care if this doesn't entertain my party guests, I can't do such a wicked thing. But he doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't say any of those things. He is too afraid. He would rather have the praise of these men. He would rather have the praise and the glory of the world, even though he knows it's meaningless in the end, than obey Jesus Christ. He would rather look good in the eyes of those who were there, those whom he knew, than look good and do right in the eyes of his and our God. And interestingly enough, we see even after John has died in those early verses of the story that Herod's still afraid, right? He's afraid that John's come back to the dead. That's who he thinks Jesus is. So him doing this horrible thing, committing this horrible act, this atrocity, doesn't in any way calm his wounded conscience. It doesn't in any way make his life better. After John's dead, he's haunted by it. He's haunted, both in a literal sense, he thinks that Jesus is John raised from the dead, and undoubtedly in a figurative sense. What are the fears holding you back from repenting? And following Jesus. Unpopular though that word is. It's important for us to understand. That if we want to understand him. And if we want to consider being his disciples. We must understand and consider the fact. That he doesn't just call you to hear. He calls you to hear and then to do. No matter the cost. 
So what is it that is holding you back this morning? You might be here and you've never repented and believed in the gospel and you feel entertained perhaps you feel puzzled like we read there about Herod you're not exactly sure what you think you're not sure you want to let these things in your life go that you think you might have to let go if it means trusting in and following Jesus we would love to talk to you more about that before you make any decision come talk to me that's part of what I love to do as a pastor is spend time talking and thinking about what it means to believe the gospel what it means to follow Jesus talk with your friend that brought you here this morning Some of you might have believed in Jesus long ago, and yet there are still things in your life that in the dark recesses of your heart you're holding on to, unwilling to let go of, unwilling to give control of those things over to Jesus, unwilling to make him the Lord of that part of your life because you are afraid. Listen, the call of the Lord Jesus here is clear. It's difficult, but it's clear. Don't let anything, don't let anyone cause you to refuse to follow Jesus through repentance and faith. Don't let fear hold you back. Why? Because it is undoubtedly worth it to follow Christ rather than following the things that are currently holding you back. Herod knew that later on when he's still haunted by his murder of John. And you will know that if you make the decision to trust, to follow, to repent and rest in Jesus as he's offering himself to you in the gospel. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew's gospel that everyone, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You understand that? Jesus is saying to you right now, That whatever it takes, whatever you must part with, whatever difficult discussion you must have, whatever difficult relationship might end, to follow Jesus will be undoubtedly, proportionally greater. It will be worth it. It is worth it to follow and to trust in Jesus because he is the only good king who will make good on what he promises. It is worth it to follow Jesus and he has proven that. And that he didn't just come to be your king like Herod wanted to be a king. No, Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came as king to serve. He came to give his life for you as a ransom to rescue you from death and darkness and peril and unbelief and fear. A king that is willing to give himself so that you will be compelled by love to follow him is a king that's worth giving up anything else for. So are you willing to do it? Herod was not. Jesus calls you to do so, to repent, to believe through the good, sweet gospel of Jesus. He will always have you back. He will always forgive. And so the call is to turn from sin and to self, to turn away from our own evil, not to put it off any longer, not to just listen and flirt, but to repent and to believe, to turn from what will only bring death to the only person who can ever give you life. And we know he can give you life because he himself has been given new life forever from God in his resurrection. Do you want to experience change? Do you want to experience the renewal, the hope, the peace, the joy even in the midst of suffering that Christianity offers? It only comes through turning 
That's what repentance is, through turning from the things that will lead to death to the one who gives life freely. We urge you and call you in the name of Jesus to do that now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious word to us. We thank you that you call us to yourself through the gospel. And Father, we thank you that in the gospel, you give us yourself. You don't merely give us good things. You don't merely give us a good life. But no, you bring us into your own perfection. You bring us into your own blessedness. You bring us into the healing that you alone offer. And Father, we ask this morning that whether we've never actually thought through this clearly ourselves or whether we've been believers for decades, that you would lead us again this morning to turn from sin, to turn from things that lead to death and to turn to Jesus Christ as he offers himself to us freely in the gospel. Help us to believe that Christ is Lord, that you have raised him from the dead, to confess with our mouth that through his death, all our sins are forgiven and help us to turn away from the sin and the failure and the shortcomings in our life, knowing that you have cast them as far away from us as the east is from the west. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The remainder of our service this morning is an opportunity for you to respond to the gospel through faith and repentance. One way we do that each week at Christ Church is through confession of our sin. This morning, we're going to pray together out loud a prayer of confession. It's going to be projected right there on the wall. And as we pray this together, I want you not to just think of this as some sort of rote religious exercise, but to think of it as a way that we together, as well as each of us individually, is expressing out loud right now to God our need for him, our need to be forgiven, our need to have the strength to turn from those things that lead to death in repentance and to him in faith. So let's confess our sins by reading this prayer together. Please, Please join me. Most merciful God, We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Hear this good word from the New Testament book of 1 John. This is true for you this morning and always. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen.